Before I get going, I want to remind you uh, where this little excursus came from. That is, we're going to be, we're launching this little side road um, to our study in the life of Moses. We're, 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 we're taking off onto a little side road. But I wanted you to know, I wanted to remind you where this came from. This wasn't because I thought, oh, well, I better go do this. No, I was dealing with the text. We're in Exodus chapter 6, and God is giving to Moses this little pep talk about going into seeing um, Pharaoh again. And the, the whole idea was, I, I think I showed you, that he mentions, I am Yahweh, four times in, in these verses 2 to 9. Um, and then he says... He mentions the covenant, and then he says, I will bring you, I will deliver you, I will take you, uh, I will bring you, I will give it to you. I will, I will, I will, I will. And this, of course, is Yahweh, who is speaking this, who is normally associated with the first person of the Trinity. And then I said to you last week, this is why we study the Old Testament. This is why it's imperative that we study the Old Testament, and yet... So much of the South has been dominated by a theological emphasis called dispensationalism, which, if anything, has devalued. It hasn't ignored uh, completely the Old Testament. It's just that because the Old Testament was uh, associated with another dispensation, a, a period of time, and we're in the age of grace up here in the New Testament, you get all this emphasis upon the New Testament and very little about the Old and therefore, um, the, the, uh, the greatest commentary ever written on the first person of the Trinity is the Old Testament. And uh, because we have been discouraged from reading it and studying it, we do not have a familiarity with the first person of the Trinity like we do the other two, the second and the third person of the Trinity. So that's the thing that made me think, okay, I'm going I'm to do, do this thing on... Um, on God the Father. You remember I, I read you that quote about Martin Lloyd-Jones, my hero, um, and where this, this newspaper um, uh, reporter uh, was giving his estimate of the, the churches in London back with, um, when Lloyd-Jones was preaching in the 50s and 60s, and, and, uh, and his assessment was this, um, uh, Soper preaches love, Weatherhead preaches Jesus, and Lloyd-Jones preaches God. For Lloyd-Jones, his emphasis was not a matter of personal preference. For Lloyd-Jones, it was biblical. Well, maybe that's because, maybe that's Lloyd-Jones's influence on me. I don't know, but it is, it is my emphasis as well. So that's what we're doing. That's what we're going to do for, I mean, you know, once I get started on some of this, it looks like three weeks, then six weeks, then nine weeks, then 12 weeks. I don't know how long it's going to take. But we're, actually, when I sense that you're getting bored, we're going to quit, and then we'll come back to it in the fall, if, if need be. But um, uh, the greatest sin of public speakers is boring his audience. So we'll, we'll see how long you can stand this, and then we'll, we'll get going. Now, guys, I want to begin with a warning. Um, and the warning is, I, this, is a, this is a quote that I heard or I read years ago, probably close to 50 years ago. It was from John Stott. Uh, the Anglican, um, and John Stott said simply this, Christianity is Christ. He is the hub, all else is circumference. Christianity is Christ. 
He is the hub and all else is circumference. Well, guys, I'd start like this to to just issue a warning. Um, I am not in any way trying to um, devalue the second person of the Trinity. I'm not trying to make him into something less than he is. Because as Stott said, Christianity is Christ. But I insist that we don't have a full understanding of even who Jesus is because we don't know who the Father is. We don't know the first person of the Trinity, so how can we understand the Trinity? That includes the second and third person. I'm saying that with a fuller and richer and deeper understanding of God the Father, your understanding and interest in God the Son will be enhanced. And then I would say this to you. What I'm going to do in these next few weeks is nothing other than what Jesus Christ in essence, said that he was going to do. Um, if you've got a Bible <clears throat> open, uh, if you can find 1 Corinthians 15 real quick, you know what 1 Corinthians 15 is? 1 Corinthians 15 is the great chapter on the resurrection. But um, after Paul has defended the resurrection, the literal bodily, physical resurrection, um, then he adds this. This is in verse 24 and 28. I'm going to read them both. Then comes the end when he, that is the son, Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God, excuse me, the kingdom to God, the father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Drop down to 28. When all things are subjected to him, God, the son, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Let me, just, let me just put some names in there so that it'll help you understand what 28 says. When all things are subject, subjected to the Son, then the Son himself will be subjected to the Father, who put all things in subjection to the Son, that God the Father may be all in all. Folks, We believe in a a Trinitarian God where all three persons are equal in power, glory, dignity, and, 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 and honor. But in terms of redemption, Christ is functionally subordinate to the Father. And it says that right there. I'm going to take the whole thing once I've got it conquered and I'm going to present it to the Father. The whole thing. So, um, I, I, I do not want to finish in nine weeks or so with you having less of a view of Christ. I want to finish in nine weeks with you having a deeper and greater view of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. But our, our emphasis for these next nine or ten weeks is going to be on God the Father. Um, and, and I should, I I think I can say, um, it's about time because not a whole lot of this gets done. Okay. So don't, don't forget that about Christianity is Christ. He is the hub and all else is circumference. But once we're finished here, I am hoping that even that statement will be richer and fuller to you. Okay. Now, um, 
if you know what pedagogy is, a pedagogue, a pedagogue is a teacher. <clears throat> and what I'm about to do is bad pedagogy. I say that from time to time because I know you, it's hard to follow when I read to you. But I'm going to read to you. And, uh, you know, gosh, I, I could set a record tonight for how fast you can fall asleep uh, by reading this thing because it's, it's a couple of paragraphs. But I want to read it because I'm telling you, folks, in my opinion, every sentence is just full of beauty. And then I'll tell you who said it and a little bit more about that once I've read it. Listen, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in the contemplation of the divinity. Now, we certainly wouldn't want to improve our minds, now would we? He's saying there's something improving to the mind just to contemplate the subject of the divinity. Listen to this. It is a subject so vast that our, all our thoughts are lost in its immensity. So deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, in them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's colt, and with solemn exclamation say, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect. Nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. That is found on the opening page of this book. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. He, uh, he opens his book with that quote. That was said by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. 
when he was 20 years old. A 20-year-old said that. But of course, he hadn't been ravaged by dispensationalism like some of us. It humbles the mind and it expands it. No subject of contemplation will do that. Like a continued thoroughgoing investigation of the deity. Guys, it was Tozer who said, the thoughts that we think about God are the most important thoughts we will think. So, what we're going to do is try to replace some meager thinking with some lofty thinking about who God is. Because God, God's nature is ultimate reality. And so, folks, there is a sense in which I could say you can know nothing until you've known him. At least you will know everything that, everything that you know will change once this, this queen of the sciences, the highest science, Spurgeon says, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God. Folks, unfortunately, because of the ravages of sin on all of us, the Apostle Paul in that, that great opening statement of, um, of Romans 1, you know, it starts with uh, verse 18 and goes through the end of the chapter. What, what, one of the things that, that would summarize those, those verses in Romans 1 is that Paul is identifying the fundamental problem of humanity as being the ignorance of God. And some of the language that he uses in there, uh, he talks about truth being suppressed. Uh, he talks about truth being exchanged for a lie. That, that thinking, this is all his language, Thinking has become futile and dark. And then the mind, he says, is debased. That's all language coming out of Romans 1. And thus it is no surprise that the behavior that is described here and the, the behavior in the 21st century and the behavior even in the Christian church is oftentimes shameless. Because we forgot to... Um, we forgot this master science. Gang, um, I will say to you that Jesus agrees, I think. Um, you know, I, I, I quote this statement a lot in John 17. Jesus, this is the high priestly prayer. You know, I've said this a dozen times. The Lord's prayer is not the prayer that Jesus preached, uh, prayed. He didn't pray that one. It's really not the Lord's prayer. It's our prayer. He taught us to pray that one. 
but the one that he prayed is found in John 17. It's called the high priestly prayer. But in the midst of that prayer, he says, and this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God. And when he talks about eternal life, guys, he's not just talking about some uh, uh, old infinite extension of years. He's saying that the whole shooting match, everything, is riding on your knowledge of God. And so you say, okay, well, if, if it's that important, then, then how, how can I know that I, that, I, that I do know him? Well, fortunately for us, uh, John answered that question. He says in 1 John 2, um, 3, he says, uh, oh gosh, if I could only see. Um, 1 John 2, 3 reads like this. Uh, and by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. You want to know if you know him? Then do you keep his commandments? And by this you come to know that you know him. Which, by the way, Jesus says is the eternal life. If we keep his commandments. And ladies and gentlemen, let me say, point out again that one of the emphases of dispensationalism is that you can avoid the law. You don't need to know the Ten Commandments because that happened in the Mosaic dispensation. You don't need that anymore. I wonder how many of you can tell me the Ten Commandments right now. In order. (laughs) But gang, part of that Part of that is because we grow up in a region where dispensationalism has been the the rule of the day. And so the Old Testament gets devalued, the the, the law gets really short shrift. In fact, by the way, guys, the only reason that a dispensationalist would tell you that you ought to obey the law is because nine of the ten are found in the New Testament. It's not that they're God's law. No. It's that nine or ten of them are found in the New Testament, in the age of grace, and therefore we about. And by the way, that's only there's one missing. The one that's not found in the New Testament has to do with the Sabbath. And boy, does dispensationalism batter the Sabbath. Because it's not found in the New Testament. Now, I just read you from 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. It says, by this we shall come to know that we know him. We keep his commandments. And Jesus said, to know him is eternal life. And yet we, um, the, the guys over at CNN, they mock us. Some of it we deserve. Because our behavior oftentimes is not as good as the Mormons. Um, now, gang, you know me better than this, but if you're here, for, I shouldn't say this. 
There's no one that's ever been saved by obedience to the law. We're saved by grace through faith alone. And yet, once we are, the standard by which we express love to the God who saved us is found in the law. Doesn't earn us a thing. Not a thing. There's nothing meritorious about a law. But it does provide a proof. It does provide an evidence that indeed I do know him. That I keep his commandments. And I'm, what I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, is that part of our, our moral and behavioral um, deficit in the Christian church is because we do not know this God. We do not know God the Father as well. And thus... You know, guys, let me give you an example. Let me see if I can find it. It's not in my notes. Uh-oh, my wife just got nervous. Um, um, gang, you know that systematics class that I, that I always teach? And, um, you know, I teach certain things in there that, you know, people just find uh, absolutely brand new. <clears throat> uh, you know, they never heard some of these things before, <laughs> which is always fun. But um, one of the things that comes up quite frequently... Um, is the accusation that what I just taught is describing God and people then conclude and say, why, I don't think that's fair. By the way, Paul addresses that in Romans 9. <laughs> I don't think that's fair. Well, could I read you something? Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel. Is my way not fair? Is it not your ways that are not fair? Do you know what that just said? Oh, the issue of fairness doesn't have to do with me. It has to do with you having the wrong definition of fairness. But here's my point. That thought never crosses our minds. That we've got the wrong definitions. And that our definitions somehow need to be adjusted and brought into conformity with him. Therefore, we become the standards. Folks, how did we get there? How did we get to the place where we're telling God what he can and cannot do? I don't like the way you're doing that. That's not fair. According to me. But it never occurs to us that maybe, maybe my definition of fairness is wrong. Well, that's what this text says. That's, by the way, Ezekiel 18.25, if you would like to look at it later on. All right, guys, I've only got about 11 minutes I want to do one quick thing um, and then set us up for next week. I want you to go to the book of Hosea. That's in the Old Testament. <clears throat> uh, it's a minor prophet. <clears throat> um, it's after Daniel. Um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Okay. Now, guys, most of you know something about the story of Hosea. 
Hosea is the prophet. <laughs> God comes to Hosea and he says, I want you to marry that prostitute named Gomer. Now, folks, anybody who would marry a woman by the name of Gomer is just asking for trouble, uh, I, I think. But um, uh, her name is Gomer, and, and he's supposed to go marry her, and she's a prostitute. So he does. And then, uh, sure enough, she's back to her old ways, and she goes out, and, and she's impregnated by some of her, her, um, her customers. And, um, uh, and, of course, then he goes and buys her off the auction block. You remember that? That's in chapter 3. Uh, I mean, there's Hosea. Uh, bidding on his own wife being sold on an auction block. <clears throat> and he, you know, somebody says, I'll give you 20 bucks. I'll give you 25. And, and he says, I'll give you 40 and a uh, bag of barley. That's, that's in the, that's in the deck. Well, so he gets his wife and uh, takes her back home and says, now you're going to be faithful to me. Um, now that whole story is of course to be um, a metaphor of God's relationship to Israel, his bride, who has been unfaithful to him, who continues to give her affections to Baal and Moloch. And so that's the first three chapters of the book of Hosea. Then we come to chapter four. We're in the book of Hosea, chapter four. We just had the Gomer thing. Uh, that's, that's over. I mean, the auction was in chapter 3, and now we're in chapter 4. Um, and I want you to notice what goes on here. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Okay, guys, do, do you understand what's going on here? Um, what you have is, is a scene where God is presenting his case against Israel. Israel is the accused. God is the prosecutor. And everything that he's about to say, all of these things that he's about to say, um, are, are, are drawn from the vocabulary of a lawsuit. I've come to present my case, my controversy with Israel. Israel is my bride. She's guilty. Now let me tell you why I think she's so guilty, says Yahweh. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Here we go. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love in Israel. I just supplied the in Israel. Why is there no faithfulness or steadfast love among Israel? Here it is. And no knowledge of God in the land. Guys, just a moment ago, I said that Paul identifies the fundamental problem of humanity as the ignorance of God. The fundamental issue with Israel and her idolatry is that she had no knowledge of God. And by the way, we could go on... Um, but look at verse 2. There is swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds of bloodshed, follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns. Okay, well, why do you get all this terrible behavior there in verse 2? I bet you can figure that out. I'll tell you why that all happens. 
because there's no knowledge of God in the land. <clears throat> and then I'm going to skip down to, uh, I'm going to jump around, but skip down to verse 6 because he says it again. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, listen, look at verse 4. Yet let no one contend, let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priests. Folks, God puts the blame squarely on the preachers. He says it again in verse 6. I reject you from being a priest to me. Why? Why is God so upset with the clergy? Because the clergy didn't give God's people knowledge of him. They failed you. And because we've got so little information about who he is and what he's like and what he loves and what he hates, we live shoddy lives. But once you get a glimpse of him, you're not going to mess around anymore. Because to do so would be unthinkable. Knowing that I belong to that God. Okay, guys, I got one more quote for you, and then we're done. This next one is drawn from this book, God in the Wasteland by David Wells. I would not recommend you read this. This is... I mean, you're welcome. There's nothing I'm trying to hide from you, but it is rough sledding. Um, he was a professor at uh, Gordon-Conwell, um, wrote about four books, and this was his first. And, but you're welcome to, but this, is, this quote comes out of there. Listen. It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless let me put that up here just real quick that word so that you might make sure that we get the right one weight g-h-t weightless god is weightless um i do not mean by this that he is ethereal you know what that word ethereal means it means gaseous he's not light and gaseous okay uh, i do not mean by this that he is ethereal but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. You know what a salient is? It's kind of like a, a point. In, in, in geography, it's a point where it just kind of sticks out. Salient means something that stands out, that sticks up and sticks out from the rest of it. Well, he's lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television. His commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. His judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news. And his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. 
That is weightlessness. The defining marks of our time, or one of them, is that God has become weightless. His commands are no more compelling than our lust for influence and affluence. Surely that hasn't happened to us, has it? Surely Yahweh has not become weightless for this people, has he? Surely not. But ladies and gentlemen, just like Israel, God said, I've got a case against Israel. Because there is no knowledge of God in the land. And when that disappears, so do high standards of moral living. Among us? How can that be? Our Father, would you use our time together in these coming weeks to to inform your people of your, of your greatness. Would you help us to, um, would you help us to come to terms with our neglect of this thrice holy God who we call our Father in heaven? Lord, might our investigation humble us and at the same time expand our minds. Might we discover the great joy of knowing that we belong to Yahweh. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.